We ask now, God our Father, that we would please be that good soil. And that as we consider your word together over the next few minutes, each of us would please bear fruit, abundant fruit, in our own lives. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I wonder how many of you have ever heard of the Lantern Rouge before. Those of you able to understand the French language being spoken with an Ayrshire accent will know what it means. It means red lantern. And uh, Lantern Rouge is a designation given to the competitor who finishes in last place in the Tour de France, the cycling race. Now, you might think that finishing in last place isn't a particularly desirable thing. But there is a certain kind of kudos that has gone with Lantern Rouge over the years. It's been seen as a sign that the competitor didn't give up. That even though they were coming in last place, they kept going all the way to the end rather than dropping out, as many others do. But that kudos has caused some problems for the organisers of the race because some competitors have decided that it's actually better to come in last place than in second last or in third last place. And uh, things came to a bit of a head during the race in uh, the late 1970s when two competitors in the Tour de France, a man called Gerhard Schoenbacher and another called Philippe Tesnier, ended up having a private race between them. Uh, Only both of them were vying to lose the Tour de France so they could win the Lantern Rouge, which to my mind must have looked something like the wacky races. But there you go. In the end, Schoenbacher won that upside down or back to front race and went down in the history books as the 1979 Lantern Rouge. See, when it comes to the Lantern Rouge, the loser takes it all. And the reason I mention that this morning is that something similar might be said of the Christian faith. According to our passage this morning in Mark's account of Jesus' life, when it comes to God's kingdom, the loser takes it all. We are continuing this series in Mark's account of Jesus' life, and if you were here a couple of weeks ago in Mark chapter 8, we thought about the stark decision Jesus says that all people everywhere have to make. The question he posed was not, do you want to lose your life? Instead, he asked, when do you want to lose your life? He gave us two options. You can either follow Jesus and lose your life now temporarily, or you can not follow him and lose it later permanently. And this morning we see that same idea being expanded and applied. You might have noticed as Rod was reading that we are tackling a big, big chunk of text for one service. There is a reason for us doing that though. The reason is that there is a coherent idea that holds this whole unit together. We can identify that idea by the way the the unit is bookended. I wonder if you noticed that as Rod was reading. Just look at the beginning of the unit with me again. Chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus sat down and called to the twelve, that's his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Then if you just skip on to the final verse in our unit for today, chapter 10, verse 31. But many who are the first will be last, and the last first. See, the question that Jesus will have us thinking about this morning 
is not, do you want to be great? The question he's going to have us consider is, when do you want to be great? Because when it comes to following Jesus, the one who sets aside greatness in this life in order to follow him, will enjoy greatness in eternity. In other words, the loser takes it all. Let's think about that under our first heading for this morning, chapter 9, verses 30 to 50, Kingdom Greatness is only possible through self-denial. Now, we've seen through the weeks and months we've spent in Mark's gospel that Mark has a tendency to to repeat ideas or repeat themes to kind of either make a point or to develop a point. And the vigilant among you might have noticed that we begin this unit with another repeat. There's a second prediction by Jesus about what's going to happen to him. Chapter 9, verse 30. Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. He'd said something very similar to that back in chapter 8. And just as back in chapter 8, his followers still don't understand what he's talking about. Chapter 9, verse 32. They did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. The pattern Jesus himself is walking in is a pattern of suffering now and glory to come. And that's a pattern that, well, his followers can't get their heads around. Much less can they get their heads around the idea that their lives, if they're to follow him, will follow that pattern too. I wonder if you've ever overheard a conversation between children uh, where they're arguing about whose dad or whose mum is the strongest or the best. It's often quite a sweet conversation to overhear where each child is really proud of their parent and is backing their mum or dad over everyone else's. My mum's better. No, my mum's better. Well, the sweetness of that kind of argument lessens somewhat if the two people arguing aren't children anymore. And lessen still further if they're not arguing over whose parent is best, but over which one of them is best. I'm better. No, I'm better. It isn't a very good look, is it? As we read on in Mark's account, Jesus' followers journey to a place called Capernaum. On their way, they're arguing. And it's an argument, verse 34, about which one of them is the greatest. I'm better. No, I'm better. Not a good look. And it's in response to that argument we hear the big idea for this unit, verse 35. Jesus sat down and called the twelve. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. When do you want to be first, he's asking them. If you want to be great, truly great in God's kingdom, you're going to have to be last here on earth. And Jesus illustrates that point in quite a shocking way in verses 36 and 37. Only the shock of what he says might pass us by at first reading, because in our culture, looking after children and caring for them and protecting them is is generally a virtuous thing. In our culture, actually, children are generally little princelings and princesses. In the first century world, though, children were right at the bottom of the social ladder. They were weak. They were dependent. They were helpless. 
And so when Jesus takes one of those children and places it right in the middle of his followers, he's talking about someone who is last of all. He's saying, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, not only is this the kind of person you're going to have to be like, no, this is the kind of person you're going to have to serve. The lowliest of Christians. And he is mainly talking about Christians there, I think. Just notice verse 37, he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Or in other words, the way to be last of all is to serve the last of all. The most dependent, the most helpless, the most vulnerable of Christians. Those of Jesus' people who can't give you anything in return. And I wonder, when you think about Jesus' call to deny self and take up a cross and follow him, whether this is the kind of ground that enters your mind about how you treat other Christian people. It's worth saying that as a church family at Hebron, I think the Hebron church family are really excellent, really wonderful at this kind of stuff, at serving one another, at taking meals to people who need them, at checking in on folks who need practical help or who are struggling with life. And one of the really wonderful things about Hebron is that that kind of love and care is is kind of reciprocated. So the person who's cared for and prayed for while they're ill one month often cares for and prays for someone else the next. But it is just worth taking our own spiritual temperature from time to time, I think. And asking ourselves, even if no one were ever to find out that I'd served that person, even if that person was never to give me anything back in return except hassle, would I still happily serve them? Would I happily come in last in order to love them? Now, that isn't the only way this kind of self-denial cashes out, though, in Mark 9. Because you might have noticed, even as Jesus is making the point about the importance of, of, of serving brothers and sisters, he's interrupted. John and some of Jesus' other followers happen across someone who is carrying out some exorcisms. And as he does so, he's claiming to be on Jesus' team, but he's not wearing the disciples' team colors. And that leaves John feeling more than a bit put out. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, in one sense, that seems like quite a reasonable reaction. Because you don't want every Tom, Dick and Harry claiming to be working for Jesus without having some kind of quality control or or some kind of franchise system set up or something. How are people to know who they can trust? And yet in response, Jesus says something pretty surprising. Verse 39. Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now, to be clear, Jesus isn't saying that it doesn't matter what someone says or does as long as they use his name when they do it. In fact, lots of the New Testament is devoted to correcting people spreading false ideas about Jesus and about what he came to do. But actually, I don't think Jesus' focus is quite so much on the other guy and on his attitude as it is on the disciples and their attitudes. 
And in particular, on on the kind of knee-jerk rivalry with someone else who's professing to follow Jesus. Another of Jesus' children, if you like. Again, I think he's expanding our understanding of what it looks like to serve Jesus' children, to seek to be last. I received a message this week from another pastor in the city, which was an illustration, I think, of the kind of heart set Jesus is advocating. And the church he serves in is, is similar to Hebron in some ways, but is very different in others. And he texted me to ask for some prayer points for us as a church family, because he wanted to pray for us, and he wanted to let me know that they're right behind us as a church. Now, it'd be very easy very, very easy for him to view Hebron as rivals or as competitors, to view us with suspicion even because we do things slightly differently than they do. And just as it's possible to do that as churches, it's quite possible to do it as individuals, to long for the gifts that another Christian has, to long to see the the same kind of fruit in your life that another Christian is seeing in their life, to be jealous of them, maybe even to resent them, to try and shut them down. See, we might shake our heads about the argument the disciples have on the road to Capernaum, about which one of them is the greatest, because it feels so crass and immature. And yet the same desire to be great, here and now, even at the expense of brothers and sisters, it can so easily creep into our own hearts. And if that idea isn't already enough of a challenge to us this morning, it certainly has been to me, well, the end of chapter 9 highlights the stakes involved. See, it's possible not only to fail in our service of other Christians, whether through rivalries or jealousy or unwillingness to serve them, but actually to cause them a great deal of harm. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung round his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus still has Christians' treatment of one another firmly in his sights. I think that's what he means when he says these little ones who believe in me. And he takes the issue very, very seriously, doesn't he? It's an issue, he says, that has eternal consequences. Verse 43, for example, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. It's very, very serious stuff, isn't it? And I do wonder if if we take this issue, the issue of serving one another, quite as seriously as Jesus does whether we think that self-denying service as part of a church family or, or putting rivalries to death when we feel them rising in our own hearts, whether it's all that big a deal. Jesus says it really, really is. When following a crossbound king, the loser takes it all. Now, I'm mindful that that's very difficult stuff, isn't it? When we hold ourselves up against that kind of mirror, it's very difficult not to feel completely inadequate. And and not just Mark 9, actually. What we've thought about over the past couple of weeks, really, standing with Jesus, even when it's costly, self-denial is difficult. And in fact, when we thought about Mark 8 a couple of weeks ago, 
a few folks spoke to me after the service to indicate they felt kind of shaken by what Jesus says. They felt inadequate in their efforts to lay down their lives in order to follow Jesus. Let me just say, if you are starting to feel that, to feel your own inadequacy and inability in light of what Jesus asks, well, the most likely explanation is that you're hearing him right. This stuff is really difficult. And in fact, difficult doesn't quite cut it. See, as we move into the first half of chapter 10, we move into what might look like some practical, but also seemingly random teaching about various different issues. He talks about divorce, verses 1 to 12. He talks about money and the danger of money, verses 17 to 31. And it looks a bit scattergun at first glance. But just remember the idea of holding this unit together. The lantern rouge principle, if you will. The loser takes it all. Having that idea in our mind's eye helps us to see these three units in chapter 10, not as separate ideas, but each of them highlighting how difficult it is to follow Jesus. How difficult it is to lay our lives down. Jesus goes further than describing it as difficult, actually. He says, chapter 10, verse 26, humanly speaking, it's impossible. But not with God. And that's our second big point this morning. Kingdom greatness is impossible. Firstly, verses 1 to 12, because of hard hearts. Now, some of us are at a stage in life where lots of our life revolves around assessments. Whether the, the, the churn of continuous assessments and essays, or the, the exams we face at the end of each term. And if you know what that's like, you might also know what it's like to sit down at your desk, maybe the night before an exam, or a deadline, and to try and calculate the bare minimum mark you would need to pass or to get a particular grade. Am I the only one who's ever done that? All right, leave me hanging. Okay, that's okay. I don't, I don't mind. <clears throat> the thinking goes something like this. If I get 47% in this essay, then combined with the marks I've got so far, that'll be enough to pass the course. Uh, if, if that rings bells with anyone who's perhaps just too ashamed to admit it this morning, then I wonder if this exchange Jesus has at the beginning of Mark 10 might resonate a bit too. In verses 1 to 12, some Pharisees, the religious zealots of Jesus' day, approach him. And uh, the topic they raise, I'm very well aware, the topic they raise, the topic of divorce, is a sensitive one. I really do understand that. And let me briefly say that Mark 10 isn't all the Bible has to say on this subject. And we aren't going to look at the ins and outs of divorce this morning, not because I think it's unimportant, but because I don't think I'd be able to give it just time, to be honest, with the time we have left. And not only that, because as I hope you'll see, the heart of the matter in Mark chapter 10 is not actually divorce itself. No, in Mark 10, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And to see that, just notice the difference between the question the Pharisees ask of Jesus and the question he asks in response. Verse 2, the Pharisees, testing Jesus, ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? To which Jesus responds, verse 3, what did Moses command you? The Pharisees' question to Jesus is, what does God permit or in other words, what can we get away with? It's the spiritual equivalent of sitting at your desk the night before an exam 
trying to calculate the lowest possible pass mark. But notice in response, Jesus' concern isn't the lowest pass mark. What does Moses command, he says in response? Jesus' concern is is, is meeting God's standard. Because doing right by God isn't a matter of squeezing by with the lowest possible grade. But hang on a minute, they say, verse 4, Moses permitted us to divorce in certain situations. That was allowed. To which Jesus responds, and this is the kicker, verse 5. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. You didn't meet that perfect standard, says Jesus. Why? Because your hearts were hard. Now Jesus does make it clear that lifelong committed marriage between a man and a woman is a creation principle. It's God's idea. And so we're right to affirm that, even even when it's culturally unpopular and even when it's personally difficult. And let me just say, if you do have any questions or concerns or anything you want to speak about in relation to divorce and marriage, please do see me afterwards. I'd be more than happy to chat. But let me also say, I don't think Jesus lurches into the topic of marriage on a whim. Marriage is an illustration. It's an example, at least in the Pharisees' eyes, of trying to circumvent God's perfect standard, to get round it. As though our objective should be to do just enough to pass a heavenly entrance exam. The God of the Bible is good and right, and his ways are perfect. Our inability to deny ourselves and follow him perfectly isn't because of a fault in him. Our inability to obey him is because of our hard hearts. Now, if you still aren't convinced that that's the main idea in verses 1 to 12, just notice how he tackles a similar principle in the third of these exchanges in Mark chapter 10. We do that under our next heading. Kingdom greatness is impossible because of divided hearts. As we read on, a man approaches Jesus, verse 17, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Again, notice the question that triggers this exchange, what is the pass mark? What's the bare minimum? That's the ground we're on in Mark 10. And as Jesus starts setting out the standard, you can almost see the man getting a checklist out in front of him, can't you? Do not murder, check. Do not commit adultery, check. Do not steal, check. Do not bear false witness, check. Do not defraud, check. Honour your father and mother, check. This guy looks like a shoo-in, by all accounts. He's sailing through the heavenly entrance exam until, verse 21, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Even if outwardly this man was as virtuous as he seems to be, was sailing through this heavenly entrance exam, if you like, well, he still wasn't able to do enough. Why? Well, because the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And his heart was divided. Can you see that? He wanted to hedge his bets. He wanted to be both first in this life and first 
in the life to come, to be both a winner and to take it all. And Jesus says that just isn't possible. All of which is a bit too much for the disciples. Verse 26, if, if this guy isn't good enough, if this guy can't enter, who on earth can? And we might ask ourselves a similar question. If God's bar is that high, if he requires perfect obedience, absolute commitment to him, this exam is impossible. And that is the point. Entering God's kingdom isn't just difficult. It's impossible, humanly speaking. But, verse 27, not with God. With God, all things are possible. And we see how that works out in the middle of these three exchanges in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. Kingdom greatness is impossible with closed hands. Now, in between Jesus' dealings with the Pharisees, verses 1 to 12, and the rich man, verses 17 to 31, he again meets some children, verses 13 to 16. And yet, I wonder if you notice that this time, the disciples aren't called to serve people like these children, serve the lowliest of people. They're called to be like these children. Verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. How does someone receive the kingdom of God like a child? Well, we've already thought about why Jesus uses children to illustrate his point. They're dependent, helpless, can't give anything back in return. And the only way into God's kingdom into eternal and abundant life is to come to him just like that. Dependently. Helplessly. To receive his goodness as a free gift with open hands. Now, we are coming towards the end this morning. Some of you, though, might be thinking there's a big contradiction in what I've said this morning. And you can see that even in the headings on the screen behind me. Heading one, kingdom greatness is only possible through self-denial. And at the same time, heading two, kingdom greatness is impossible. So which of those points are right? Something can't be both possible and impossible, can it? Well, no. And yes. When it comes to following Jesus, self-denial is essential. And at the same time, it's impossible. At least it is for us. But not with God. That's what Jesus said to the half-hearted rich man, didn't he? With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And so if we've reached the end of, of our little section for this morning, and you feel at the end of yourself at the end of your own resources, spiritually speaking, unable to meet God's perfect standards, whether in how you love other people or in how you use your money or in your relationships, if it all feels just beyond you, then you are in exactly the right place. Because you can't do it on your own. In order to honor God, you need God. Firstly, you need his grace. That undeserved gift, grace that sees your failure to meet his perfect standard and doesn't lower the bar of what's required, but meets it himself. 
sending his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life and die a criminal's death in your place. And so given that the entrance exam into God's kingdom is impossible for any of us to achieve on our own, well, the first question each of us have to consider this morning is whether we will receive that gift with open hands as a child who can't give anything back in return and so be welcomed as one of his children into his wonderful eternal kingdom. And if that's the first question, whether we'll receive that grace with open hands, well, the second question is, having received that grace, will you ask for his help to follow him? To ask that the Holy Spirit will enable you to deny yourself, to do the impossible, to serve the least, to come last in this life. Because it is hard, isn't it? Even as we think through the various applications in Mark 9 and 10, it feels impossible, and that's because it is, humanly speaking. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. So let me encourage you this morning, if nothing else has an outbox of this talk, please be on your knees and be asking for his help every single day as you look to follow a cross-bound king. Let me begin by doing that for all of us just now. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you for the good news of the Lord Jesus. The King who was crucified to save us, to welcome us into your family. And yet even as we thank you and even as we praise you, we acknowledge quite how difficult it often is to follow him. How often we fall short. How often our hearts are hard. How often our hearts are divided. We ask, Lord, that you would please forgive us for our failure. Help us to receive your gift of salvation with wide open hands. And would you please help us as we look to pursue you ever more closely. To be be those who would come last in this life. And first in eternity. We ask all of this for our joy and for your glory. And do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.